Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hi, everyone. We are so happy to welcome author agent team Joe Wu and Trisha Lawrence to the podcast. Just a note that if you happen to be listening while driving, say, your minivan carpool for your neighborhood, this episode contains some adult themes. If you get stuck with awkward questions, well, you've been warned. Enjoy. Joe, I love this about you. On your bio, it says when writing, she can be found accompanied by a plethora of goth mugs, constantly refilled with green tea while blasting a mix of metal and orchestral scores. When she is not writing, she will be sewing her next costume, deadlifting her next powerlifting goal, and auditioning for voiceover gigs. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I definitely am a firm believer that I have to have multiple different creative outlets. I'm sure many creatives can identify with the feeling of feeling very burnt out with one outlet and then not knowing what to do next. And so when I'm not writing, I love sewing and making a bunch of costumes. And I'm also an agented voiceover artist. And I just got an audiobook gig last week that I'm super excited for. That's amazing. And I love working out for my mental health as well. It just keeps me energized. Awesome. Joe, let's just go back to the querying process. It's so difficult. How did you find Trisha? Yeah, I don't know how to make this a short story, but I found Trisha because my mentor Gail Villanueva referred me to Trisha after she and I rehauled my manuscript. And she told me, oh, yeah, like, Trisha's a great agent. Like, I was choosing between her and another agent when I got my agent offers. And I think you and her would really vibe well. And I think she would like your work. And I said, cool, great. And my mentor told me she reached out to Trisha. And Trisha was like, hey, Trisha wants your full. And I was like, oh, my God, okay. And so I waited three months. And... Three months later, Trisha got back to me and she was like, hey, I want to get on a call to potentially discuss working together. Trisha was the first one to offer to me. And after talking with other agents and getting another offer, I was like, well, I think Trisha's the one. So I'm just going to tell her she's going to be my agent. And we've yeah. been together since. Trisha, tell us from your point of view, why were you immediately into this work? I'm one of those odd agents. So I don't actually do much off a of query. I'm more interested in the manuscript itself. So I'm one of those that gets the query, but goes right to double click manuscript, open it up, read, and then I'll read the query after I've fallen for something. A lot of agents read queries first and they use those to filter. But because of the way Aaron Murphy Literary runs, we're never open to queries. We're always closed. So everything that I get in my inbox as a query or as interest is a referral from someone who I trust greatly. And so then I always just go right for the manuscript to read because I feel like that's just a better judge for me of what's coming my way. The manuscript, first of all, was something that I immediately fell for. It's basically the story of Hulu Jing and this wonderful mythology that we do not see enough of. And I had seen a little glimpse of it in a Netflix or a Prime Video streamer because that's what we did through COVID is we streamed a lot of shows. So they're all bunched in my head and I couldn't tell you the names of each of the things I watched, but all the different pieces that were interesting to me are stuck up there. So I read Joe's manuscript and was like, 
I've seen this before somewhere and I loved it. I couldn't stop thinking about it after I watched that streaming show. And that's what basically drew me right into Joe's manuscript. The other piece of this is that a lot of times I get referrals from folks who I just really trust their judgment. I really vibed with them as a person and offered on their stuff or we're friends or we know we have similar tastes. And Gail Villanueva is one of those people who just is a good soul. Like she's just a good person through and through, cares desperately about children's literature and being just an incredible advocate for others. And she's also just number one, hilarious. Her and I have a grand old time and we've always had fun. And so then when she wrote to me, I was like, oh my gosh, I felt very honored because I know Gail could go to anyone and could refer to anyone. And so the fact that she highly recommended Joe and just was raving about Joe's work, I like to be told, this is awesome. You should read this. And I'm like, okay, I'll go read it. And then of course, when I read it, it was what I wanted and was interested in. And that's so subjective. For all I know, Joe could have written a story that wasn't interesting to me. But I think the piece of this is that you just don't know. You can't control it. That's the hardest part, I think, about querying, especially during the pandemic, is you just don't know when those magical connections happen. And it just feels like all you get is a lot of no. And I think Joe can speak to that quite well, just from her experience, how long it took to find an agent who was willing to take her work and be like, okay, I think I can do something with this. Yeah. Joe, tell us more about that. How long did it take? 16 years. Yeah. Aren't you glad you stuck with it? <laughs> yeah, I am very glad it was worth it. Yeah. And yeah, part of those 16 years did involve a five year hiatus where I was just mm -hmm. like, oh my God, I am so burnt out. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is ever going to work. Let me just take a break from writing. And that break turned into five years of just not writing anything before I wrote the manuscript that Trisha signed me on with. That's so interesting. It sounds like, oh, Trisha knew somebody, you had the amazing reference, and then it just landed in the inbox and was like, yes. But like all of those years and all of the emotional right. <laughs> trials and right. playing with story, and that's all part of it. And you hear that all the time. Like people look like they're overnight successes, but really there's just so years. much pain years. and yes. learning and, and process stuff that you need to do. And I think it's okay. For writers to say, yeah, I did take a break. It didn't mean I didn't love writing. It just meant that I needed a pause to fill that energy back up. So amazing story. I think the way I look at writing as someone who's written since I was seven, got my first stuff published when I was in middle school. My first books were published when I was in my 20s mm -hmm. and still haven't written since. I think if you're a writer, sometimes this journey doesn't look like it's tweetable. There's just not enough little cute tweeting things that you can do when there's just silence or you don't feel like you have anything to say. And I think part of our instant society, and I'm not saying that any of the long waits or the supply chain stuff and all the issues that we're facing with authorship where we are in 2022, I don't want to excuse any of that away because it's very frustrating. But I do think there is a long it's called when I ran in high school, I ran cross country because I had a slow twitch run. That's what they called me, a slow twitch runner. I wasn't a fast twitch. I wasn't a speedster. I couldn't sprint 100 meters. That was just not something I could do. I'd just be like, oh, my God, forget it. I fall over. But I could take on six miles. And I think a lot of times in this writing business, we forget about the long twitch, the slow marathon, the long race. And I know that's not what anyone wants to hear, probably when they're coming to this podcast that, oh my gosh, it could take a while. We're doing everyone being burnout. We're dealing with so many things. And I do not discount any of that. However, I will say that I 
am a writer as well. And I can't just produce every five minutes. Like I get tired. All writers do. And so I think what Joe's speaking about is very vital for writers to remember that you may have to take a break and it's okay. It's not going to end your career. It's not going to ruin your life. It's just what you need so that you can sustain. Because if you're a writer, it means you can't not write. I say to anyone, if you can do anything else, go be a hedge fund manager. They're making bank right now. Go do that. But so many people are like, I can't stop writing. And then I'm like, then you're going to have to pace yourself because this is not a sprint. This is not a quick little hundred yard dash. This is a marathon where you're going to go for a long time. It will take years. I'm proof of it. So is Joe. What tips do you have for writers who are noticing that it's taking a long time and not the overnight success they expect? I'll just say that I am so sorry on behalf of all the industry. We are so sorry because, man, my referral box is full and I can't get to it. And it's not because I don't want to. It's not because I don't try. It's because I literally don't have enough hours in my day right now because there's so much other stuff going on. I'm trying to move publication dates. I'm trying to get people sold. I'm in intense negotiations that are taking forever. I think for querying writers, this is my advice. Do not let go of your dream. You hold it and you feed the fire however you can do it by doing short stories. Publish wide. Just go do stuff. Just play and have fun and just keep stoking the fire. And just because you're not a published writer doesn't mean you're not a writer. And that's one thing I just want people to remember is you're a writer. Keep going. If you have the bandwidth, if you have the mental stamina, keep going because I see what's in my referral inbox. I see all of it. It's just gems in there. And yet I can't just sign everything because I just don't have the bandwidth. I'm just one person. So we're referring. We're constantly, but every single week we get at least four or five people who have interest or an offer on the table and they're looking for rep and we're just trying to get them the right proper representation. All of this is about trying to get writers to be empowered. And so that sometimes slows me down because I'm trying to make sure my writers that I already have are getting the best possible deal. And then when folks come in with offers, I'm trying to make sure they land. I see them all as just these lovely possibilities. And sometimes I have to pass, sometimes I have to move them on. I think Aaron Clyburn was open for two days and got 200 queries in two days. That is unheard of. That is at a rate that no one can sustain. Becca Potos ended up with a 1,400 queries in 30 days. But at the same time, if you look at the opposite side, which I do, it's an abundance of riches. This means that you know how many people sat through a pandemic and instead of just binge watching like I did, they wrote something that is actually their truest thing that they could possibly write. So in my head, I think this is the best thing that could happen. <laughs> I'm like, yay, more. But then there's capacity and who can handle it? We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough editors. We don't have enough people. So we just have to allow it to be what it is, boiling over, for lack of a better analogy. And then at some point, it'll start to simmer and we'll get control of it. Hopefully sometime soon, once we all can get this thing cooking again. But I would say to any writer right now, if you have the stamina, if you have the emotional and mental health to stay in it, stay in if you can. And it, we get it. If you have to take a break, do not give yourself crap about it. As you were talking about your inbox, I had this image of just looking at the best box of chocolate you've ever had. And then you're like, oh, this yeah. one. It's amazing. And I feel like that is the passion that we all want with our agent. So Joe, I'm going to go back to you. Just digging in a little bit more about the long haul and the creative process. 
when I was stalking you online, which I do before these podcasts, I saw your amazing outfits and cosplay and all of that. And I was wondering about the intersection of dress up and make pretend and all of the wonderful things that goes with cosplay and writing. If you could dive into that a little bit, that would be amazing. Sure thing. Yeah. I've always been this super creative kid growing up. I, of course, loved reading. I loved writing. I loved drawing. I loved just like looking at costumes and Disney movies and princess movies and historical dramas. And I remember in my college and pre-college days, I've always wanted to get into sewing and costuming. Like both my grandmothers were seamstresses and independent business owners, which was unheard of at their time. My mother also knew how to sew, but she didn't really teach me to sew until I begged her to teach me. As I was just about to graduate college, I was like, mom, I need to learn how to sew. Please at least teach me the basics. So she showed me the basics. Sewing just felt like this new magical, like creative outlet for me. And I think part of the reason why my break from writing just became this five-year hiatus was because I was filling my creative well with sewing and cosplaying and making costumes and entering competitions and building a social media following around that. It was very rewarding. I am very supportive of people and creatives in general just having at least two creative outlets. It's just because like when you are burnt out in one, having another can really help you just fill that creative well. It doesn't have to be anything you want to make a career of or that you have to have an agenda for aside from just making yourself happy. I love sewing and I've had people ask me like, why don't you make a career out of it? Or why don't you be a fashion designer? I have played around with that idea, but at the end of the day, I realized, you know what? I'm just having fun. And I just love dressing up and getting to show off my work. I just want to be creative and have fun. And that has really helped me influence my writing because when the pandemic hit and all the conventions, all the events where I would wear my costumes were just shut down and canceled, I was just like, hey, I feel creatively renewed to write again. So the manuscript that I signed on with Trisha, I actually just cranked it out in less than a month for my first draft. And what? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a good first draft, but that's. <laughs> But I mean, first drafts are never perfect. It could just right. be a mishmash of just your rambling thoughts. Like Neil Gaiman says, it's just right. Just get it out there. You can always revise later again. And revision is just always going to be ongoing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, that was where the intersection of cosplay sewing and writing came in for me. It's just that I feel like these different creative mediums and formats can really inform each other and just really round me out more as a creative person. Yeah, love that. And Trisha, behind you, it looks like a list of sewing projects. Yes. So Joe's much more talented than I am, but I learned to sew in middle school in 4-H back in the 80s. And so you had to do like fashion shows and stuff. So I actually had to make a skirt and strut around in a fashion show, which was horrifying. But anyway, I was quite a seamstress. There was a few years in my 20s where I sewed everything I wore in the 90s. And that was something that was very interesting and creative for me to sew all my clothes. And then I lost interest. And now 20 years later, one of the things that I never finished sewing is this amazing piece of 1990s like poplin print of viscose rayon. And I was making a skirt. And I'm like, oh my God, it's back in fashion. <laughs> so yeah, so I was supposed to be finishing that. But I play with sewing because it's something that 
connects me with my grandmothers. It's something that my mom taught me how to do. And I think Joe's very right. Like for the most part, it's a form of tangible play. And a lot of times I talk to authors a lot about my own clients where they're just so frustrated and they can't get through on a manuscript. And I'll be like, you need to put down the laptop and you need to go do something with your hands. And so they go garden or they go draw. You'll just see this. The creativity has to come out somewhere. And sometimes it's not in writing. Sometimes it has to take a minute and do something else. So I think Joe is right on. And I've always been just a huge fan of people get to be creative in as many ways as they possibly want to be creative. So I like people who are just creative forces. I love this discussion because yesterday a writer wrote to us saying, I'm burnt out. What do mm -hmm. I do? And I wrote a long response about the things that worked for me, the things that had not worked for me. But I think one of the things that consistently works is not just zoning out watching TikTok for hours. You need a little bit of that too. But right. I think actively doing something else, active rest, walking, cooking, sewing, I think that is probably the key to getting rid of burnout. I think you're very right. There's limits. And the brain is such a lovely masterpiece of science and also completely confusing and baffling to us. We still don't know what all is going on with implicit, explicit memory. And I think a lot of times that we're using a certain part of our brain to create a story, which is great. But sometimes you've got to activate other parts of the brain so that part can have a rest, not have a rest, or maybe be infused with other stuff coming because that is how the greatest creative accomplishments happen is when you try something outside the box, you merge things, you take two disparate ideas and you push them together. So for me, I think creativity, and this goes back to my point before, is this is a lifelong habit. This is not something that just because you're going to get to announce on Twitter, which is so fun, trust me, but do not judge your progress as a creative off of Twitter. It's just a bad idea because there's so many people who spent years being creative. You'll see them in the books. You'll see Mary Oliver did not get famous or become creative by sitting on Twitter. She went and walked in nature and she looked and she observed. Emily Dickinson stayed in her bedroom her entire life and never left. There's other things than the social media, TikTok, Instagram world, not to dash it because it's great and I am addicted, but I do think it's really hard, especially with all of us marooned in our houses and our silos. It's gotten very difficult to step back out of this. Oh my gosh, look what they're doing. Look what they're doing. Look what they're doing because we're so hungry to find that, okay, I need to keep up that you can just unplug and just do something else and just be creative and just be so surprised at how it just refreshes you, renews you. And suddenly the novel that you're like, oh, I'm never going to get this. You're like, oh, that might work. And then boom, there's the synapses firing in your brain and it's a whole new ballgame. So for the writers out there who are seeing everybody succeeding so fast, so they think. What do you think is something that they can take as an actionable step? Do one thing to their query, have a list of how many people they send something to. What is a small goal for a writer out there seeing all of that happen? I'll take it, Joe. For me, it would be, first of all, to get a really good, solid sense of self. And I know that sounds really woohoo, but sometimes you just need to feel it in your belly. Okay, this is what I want. This is what I'm trying to do. And you need to feel that rest deep down inside of you. And you're like, this is who I am. This is what I'm attempting to do. This is what I want to do. A lot of times writers, I think there's a dissociation involved with the social media that you can just literally get on social media, turn your brain off, see all the stuff flying by, and then your self-esteem, your sense of self just gone. So first of all, get your sense of self, get your true core back, hold a rock, put your bare feet in dirt, sit grass, whatever, 
Be like, who am I? What am I trying to accomplish? And then look around you and find the thing. So for some people, it's they want the challenge for some people want the easy, no barrier. So you have to figure out what kind of person you are, too, as a writer. So for those people who are like, give me a challenge. I want to get back in the race. I want to fight. I've got myself. Let's go. Then I would say, what's the thing that basically makes you feel like you're never going to get over it and go attack it? Or for those writers who are like, I don't want to go after the hard thing. I want just the easy entry. Then just think of the whole thing that's stressing you out and then think, okay, what's one piece of it? One bite. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Like you find the bite and then you sit basically the first day. I need to write a synopsis. For a lot of writers, that's the thing that shuts them off because you have to pitch. It's short. It's, oh, it's torture. So I say to writers, first day, tell yourself, I think I'm going to try and write a synopsis. Done. Day two, find a book or another story that tells you either a craft book about writing a synopsis or go grab five of your favorite books and just type out the flap copy. Just type what they did. You're not using it. Those are the kind of little pieces that I mean for easy barrier. So there's the overachievers among us who are like, I'm going to do it all today and I'm going to write the synopsis in four hours. Okay, more power to you. Go get it. But most of us are just human beings. We do not have superpowers. So just that one thing, they've made one little bitty teeny teeny move towards conquering something or getting to something. And it doesn't even have to be massive. It just can be a little shift in the equilibrium of the energy of the moment. And you're like, okay, now I'm going to go make dinner and do laundry or work my job. I've done something towards my dream. That's mm -hmm. my advice. So I know for me, when I get super frustrated with a manuscript or things are just not coming together with mm. dreaded writer's block, mm. sometimes I try to remember that doing other things for the story that doesn't involve writing is also a form of productivity. For instance, I know we've like mentioned about binging and streaming shows, but for me, I feel like when I consume media, oftentimes my writer brain is still on. Mm -hmm. When I'm watching these different shows and as I'm watching movies or TV shows, I will think, okay, what do I like about the writing of this show? Or what do I not like about it? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I find that with these shows or movies, I will think, I didn't like this dialogue or I did not like this plot point or the first half of the show was great, but oh my God, everything from the midpoint all the way to the end, like what a mess. What were they thinking? And oftentimes that helps me because I'm just like, wait a minute. So if these team of professional writers are not doing what I think they should have done, what would I do as a writer mm -hmm. to jump in if I was part of that team? And that has definitely fueled me as a writer to be able to see, okay, what is out there? What would I do differently? And even when I'm not binging shows, like I'm also on social media a lot. Like I love Pinterest for aesthetics, for my stories mm -hmm. and Sometimes I will revisit my aesthetic boards or I'll have these pinned images of actors I would cast as my characters or aesthetics that I love from photographers and even listening to music like Spotify. I'll just be like, oh, yeah, this is the kind of vibe and energy that I love that made me fall in love with the story. And even when you're not working on your stuff at any stage from the beta rating to like watching a movie that's already in theaters can definitely make you think, okay, how can I improve my own work myself as well? And also you get to cheer each other on and make friends along the way. I'm guilty of that too. I was like, that's right. <laughs> I was like, this is going to happen next. And you know what? This is going to happen next. But my kids are like, 
Stop. <laughs> like that, like, like if you can predict a super predictable plot point and it actually happens, then you're like, oh, that was so predictable. Because I'll watch some of these shows with my boyfriend and my boyfriend is very good at predicting what's yes. next. And then it happens. And my boyfriend's, man, I should be editing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm fascinated by the similarities between the two of you as like a bookmaking duo. Joe <laughs> yeah. talks about playlists that I have on my list here. Trisha, that you make playlists for every project that you have. I do. I'm very much a music person and I listen to everything. I love symphony, I love full symphony, classical opera, you name it. So if something's going out of submission, it's a kind of a different vibe. And then once it gets sold, it actually has another playlist because music, it's like my prayer. It sounds so religious, but I'm sending this vibe out to the readership, to the public, buy this book, understand what we're trying to say here. Because a lot of my books I feel very deeply about when I send them out there, they mean a lot to me. So I'm with Joe there for sure. Lots of playlists, lots of different things. I have music going constantly, just like Joe does. Joe's got some playlists. Yeah, I'd be happy to provide a playlist for the manuscript that Trisha and I are out on sub on. Probably not a full playlist, but like the main songs that really captured the vibe for me when I was writing. So yeah. I'll be happy to share that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I want to hear that. Yeah, like I'll definitely send a list of the favorite. Put it in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. Great. So just check out the show notes and you can hear Joe's list of songs. Trisha, can you talk about being a referral-only agent and what that means and how you made that decision? Sure. It's just the policy of Aaron Murphy Literary. I've been at Aaron Murphy Literary for 11 years and we just were not open at all. We just always have done referrals. I think that's because we just feel like referrals, they keep us busy enough that the idea of opening to the public and adding that on is very overwhelming to just our systems because we refer to each other and there's six agents at our agency and there's just a lot of stuff that comes in. Sometimes I've, oh man, it does feel like we're closed off to authors because we're not open. And a lot of authors have come and said, oh my gosh, when are you going to be at an event? So I try really hard to be available to show up at local like SBWI region. I try to do just anything I can do to talk to authors and be available to authors because I know it feels like, once again, we're closing that gate, but it's just a process that was set up before I joined Emla. And for me, I see why it's done because we get so many referrals. If we were also open, I think we'd end up having to close anyway. So because it would just be overwhelming. Through the pandemic, I am Ben and I know other agents in my agency have been open to BIPOC. LGBTQIA folks. So they're free to come in. And that is just something that we've decided to do as of June 2020. We just were like, hey, open the door. So those folks have no problem. I know that's frustrating to other people, but it's just trying to be fair and help those who have been underconsidered in the past. So I just wanted to clarify that this does not mean that everyone should go out, try to befriend your clients, try to get a referral. Everybody, this is a very small business. So that's the piece of this, that if you sit around long enough, you're going to find someone who can probably get your referral into these houses that are into these agencies that are closed. I wish it worked that way, like faster, because I hear the frustration. But at some point, I will be somewhere where you can possibly query me. I try very hard to stay just involved in the business so that people can get access to me and not have to worry about finding that referral, because that just feels like a very big mountain. So Joe. You also write short stories, and your short story, Devoured by Envy, has been praised by Publishers Weekly as 
the most gothic of successful stories in the anthology Darker Edge of Desire, Gothic Tales of Romance. <laughs> Can you tell us about this work and any tips you may have for other short story writers out there? Yeah. Oh my God. I think I want to say that story is nearly 10 years old at this point. So I will say a lot of my short stories will go towards the more like adult voice and content just because it's easier to produce. Gothic stories are definitely like in line with what I enjoy writing. The tropes and aesthetics are something that really resonate with me. I try to tell writers, write what you love and enjoy mm. what resonates with you because that definitely mm. comes through more easily. So I just remember when that Publishers Weekly review came out, I was like, oh my God, they mentioned my story. Ah! And I will say for people who want to write short stories, I'd say go for it. It's very mm. fun. It can get your mind off of a giant monstrous manuscript that you may be finding yourself slogging through. I like to think of short stories as, oh, snack break. Yes, yeah. I think that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Very fun snack breaks. And I find that even if you are struggling with, say, the manuscript itself, I think like being able to be like, hey, why don't I write a short story from the perspective of this character in the manuscript who isn't the main character? Because that could definitely break down some of that creative block and help inform the story, even if it never gets published anywhere, even if nobody's going to read this. This is really just for me to get through the main manuscript. And for any video gamers out there, I also like to think of short stories as, oh, the side quest. But you're just like, let's do these side quests because it just makes the journey and the experience of, much more rich. Yeah, exactly. Much more richer. You definitely feel that satisfaction. I just think it can only make you a better and more well-rounded writer and if you want to publish short stories and if you get them published that's just something that you can add on to your writer bibliography to show to future editors and also try to make it easier for your agents. I think this is a really interesting point that maybe a lot of writers haven't considered is you're starting children's literature and teen literature like here's the categories right that's the thing that in this field we are writing very regimented, very specific type of categories. And I think what I love to see, and I hope writers will also join with Joe in this, is that the writing life doesn't have to fit into those categories. You Only your published stuff does, right? Only what you're trying to sell. So you can write outside and around those categories and play and just enjoy it. And you can do it in a way that helps you in the first development of writing, which is that story draft. As you're trying to find the story or trying to figure out different things, you can write a short story from the perspective of the antagonist. You can write a short story from the perspective of the sidekick to enrich the bigger project. In the revision process, short stories, like Joe said, can be used to like figure out what's going wrong in a longer novel. And so I think a lot of times because we're working with children's literature and teen literature, because we see the market so completely like here's the hedgerows, this is where you must fit to make it in this business. I think writers think they have to just only write there. They can only do their creative work there. And I think what I love so much about Joe's experience and just what she has been doing over the past 16 years is she's going outside of those hedgerows. And I think to me, that's what allowed her to have the stamina to stay in so long and then to ultimately get to the point where she has an agent and now has an agent for her voiceover work. Like it feels like that's where the creativity kicked in for her. 
And I will also add in for short stories, it's also much easier to get feedback from a craft perspective as a writer, because I know for novels, it could be so hard to just get full feedback on a full manuscript for short stories. And, and it's really nice to get these feedbacks because usually they're like, oh, this was what we really liked. And these were your strengths. And then these were what you can improve on. And I was mm -hmm. like, hey, this is actually really helpful. And I actually don't suck as bad as I thought I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And it might be easier if you're looking for a critique group or looking for that feedback. It might be easier to start a short story critique group because they're short. And also we have a Facebook group. All of you can join manuscriptacademy.com slash Facebook. There are about 3000 really nice, helpful writers. And I will say the Facebook group really got me through the querying journey. I found critique partners through there. A dream agent rejected me. And I just remember feeling so, so sad and just posting about my experience there. And posting in there was what actually got my mentor to notice me. So even though I was mm. just expecting like a pity party and maybe getting some helpful feedback, my mentor found me there. And if it wasn't for me posting that super sad post <laughs> in, in the Facebook group, I would not have found my mentor and I would not have found Trisha. So you had a bad You had to get rejected. You went yeah. to the Facebook group. And you said, oh, I lost my dream agent. And someone came in and said, I will help you. Yeah. So to flesh out this story a little bit. Okay. So when I entered Pitch Wars in 2020, I had three full requests from three different mentors, which is unheard of. Mm -hmm. And then all three mentors went on to shoot another mentee, which I was like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. And then some months later, after the Pitch Wars request, there was this agent who was on my wish list. Since 2014, I remember her sending me a personalized rejection way back in 2014. Mm. She was so nice. I remembered her. She requested my new manuscript through a Twitter contest. And uh, she had my manuscript for months. And I was like having my hopes on her. And then uh, she sent me a very nice, very sweet, but personalized rejection. And that uh, she was so sorry to uh, <laughs> be down after so long. And I just remember feeling so, so sad and just really defeated. And I just remember posting in the Manuscript Academy group being like, I'm really sorry to be a Debbie Downer, but is there anyone here who could give me advice about what I'm going through? Because I'm sure others have also experienced. And among the comments that came pouring in on that post, one of them was from one of those pitch war mentors, which was Gaya Villanueva. And she said, hey, I recognize you. Send me an email. And I emailed her and she was like, you were among the final five mentees that I was considering, but even though I didn't choose you, I did want to reach back out to you to see if you wanted to be my unofficial uh, Pitch Wars mentor. And I was like, what? Oh my God, yes. That's and fantastic. There's a quote where they say, when you are at your lowest point, that's when you are the most open to, I think, becoming stronger. I can't remember mm -hmm. if that was from Legend of Korra or Avatar The Last Airbender, but from that franchise. That saying just really resonated with that experience of just being at a super low point mm -hmm. and just opening myself up by posting that mm -hmm. post. Right. That was right. the magic of the Manuscript Academy Facebook group. Yay. I love hearing that. That makes me sad. I just want to emphasize you had to get rejected to get an agent, right? Yeah. This match feels so secure and so exciting. So yeah. what's next for you both? We're on submission with her debut. We've got another couple manuscripts cooking. Joe does not let any grass grow underneath her. She is one of the hardest working, one of my most prolific because she always has ideas and she's always going. 
I think what I would love to see is selling her debut novel and getting her started and also have her hopefully get a job if she wants one, if she needs one, and then also have her voiceover work continue to grow. The thing I love about this business is that you don't have to do just one thing. I rep many clients who have very successful multi-potentialate lives, and I love that because that's kind of me. I've always been one of those people who just had all this stuff going, and that's where I'm my most happiest. I think that's where Joe is her most happiest, when she's busy and thriving and doing plenty of things. So that's my goal as her agent is to keep her busy. But what's next for you, Joe? Yeah, so I am working on a dark fantasy middle grade that I've been working on since last year. It looks at intergenerational trauma through a dark fantasy lens with a middle grade voice. So I am very excited for that one. I like to call it like John Wick matched with the relationship of Arya and the Hound through a middle grade fantasy lens. So that's what very it's about. Cool. And then I'm also in the very, very early stages of researching for a historical fiction that takes place in the Bay Area in the early 1980s and centers around the murder of the Taiwanese journalist Henry Liu, which is shockingly not learned about or not well known in even Asian American history. And what drew me to that project was not just about the importance of the freedom of speech and how it really helped Taiwan as a country move out of martial law and become the democratic country that it is today and how I see that through an Asian American lens. So that is something that I'm very excited about as well. So exciting. I think half the time writers think that just because they don't have a beautiful manuscript or they don't have a huge social media following, you don't need one. Sorry, you don't have to be a star on TikTok. You don't have to do any of this. You have to have a really good idea. You have to have a good idea. And you just have to be patient or just keep hammering those doors. I know that there's two kinds of people listening, like some that are like, I want to give up. Why should I keep trying? And I just tell them to be patient. But I also know there's folks on here who are like, I'm coming in. Don't bar the door. Here I come. So I, I don't want to ever say to them, be patient, because that feels very <laughs> condescending. So I'd be like, go ahead. Come at us. Like, go ahead. Go. Come on in. Because I am not afraid of it. The thing about all of these wonderful authors like Joe writing, and being prolific, that's not scary to us. That's literally the last thing that would be scary. The scary part is when you have publishers like today who told us that freight costs for shipping are 500% up. Things are costing way more. We're dealing with the fact that we're still trying to have to convince publishers that you shouldn't be taking that out on your creatives. That should be something that maybe your owner of your publishing company shouldn't buy another yacht this year. Maybe they should just skip that part, right? They should just like maybe just not upgrade the yacht. Think about your creators. Like the fact that we're still fighting with a big five publisher to this day and not the editors, we're fighting with the publisher, the business people to say, you shouldn't be paying authors in fourths. You shouldn't be giving advance splits in fourths. You should not be making them wait till publication for a fourth of their advance or a year after publication. It's like me saying to my grocery store, I'm going to pay you a quarter of it now. I'll pay you a quarter of it in nine months. I'll pay a quarter of it when I eat it and a quarter of it a year after I eat it. Like that's not gonna fly. It doesn't fly anywhere in real life. And I think publishing has got to figure that out. So when I say to authors patience, I don't say to them, just accept it. We have to keep fighting. There's different levels to this. There's inequity and the need for under-considered voices to get their full due, to feel like they have a seat at the table and they have a voice and they get to say what they want to say. So there's so many levels to this. So when I say be patient, I'm talking to those folks who are like, 
I don't know if I can do it. I'm saying that to them. And when I'm saying go after the doors, I'm saying that to folks like Joe who are like, let me in, I'm coming in. So there's just different audiences. And I never want to be on a podcast with a one answer fits all because then I'll basically just discourage someone. So if you're listening and I haven't said the right thing that makes you feel like you can do it, know that I've got you and I see you as a writer. I'm a writer. Joe's a writer. We're all in this because we want your writing. We think you matter and you mean something in this business. I believe that to the bottom of my heart. I believe everybody gets a shot. That said, the business is making it very difficult for us to be able to get to everybody. So it just feels hopeless at this point in time. So I hope that's helpful. And to add in there as a writer, especially to BIPOC writers, like I'm always happy to meet new BIPOC writers wherever they are in their career. My Twitter DMs are open. If anyone wants to reach out to me about their querying journey, like I know how hard it can be. I still have friends who are not agited, but are out Mm. there just like working their butt off. And I feel that I know what it's like to feel like you're going on scene or just getting a mountain of rejections. And (laughs) it's just really sad for me that I can't, we can't accept everyone. Joe, this is my question for you today, (laughs) not to put you on the spot, but as a writer who's been on both sides, who's been unagented looking, waiting years to get your shot and now have an agent, what can we do to do better? How can we be better? That's a really great question. And there isn't like a one size fits all answer that can go for this. Yeah. But I think like at least having your inboxes open to underrepresented writers, whether they be BIPOC, um, LGBTQ or neurodiverse, like having their inboxes open to them, even when you are closed. It's definitely a good start because just historically, minorities don't have the connection that maybe like a cis hetero person can get. And so that's a good start. I know your guys' inboxes are super, super flooded. And I think just taking to Twitter, being transparent about what's going on in the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. I know historically there has been very hush. We don't talk about Bruno's song. We don't talk about We don't talk about about going on submission. But it's no, it is so enlightening to see what's going on the other side. I know for me, before I got agented, I was just like, oh, any agent will do. But now that I've been on the other side and I've talked to other writers about their agenting experience, I realized how ridiculously lucky I am to have you, Trisha, because not all agents... Right back at you. It shocked me to hear that not all agents will champion their writers the way you have with me, Trisha, because I was talking with one BIPOC writer who told me that she left her first agent because they were on first round of submission. They weren't getting any bites and her agent just started ghosting her. And when the author ultimately was like, hey, you know what? I just don't think this is going to work out. Like she felt like the agent was just relieved to let her go. And I was like, that is really sad. Wow. That's horrifying. I actually wouldn't mind taking a little segment here. And if Joe's up for it, I would love to talk about what is normal so that maybe if any BIPOC or LGBTQ or neurodiverse folks are listening, that they can take heart and know what is good and what is bad, if that would be helpful, Julie and Jessica. So, Joe, so for you, is there any piece of how I send out your submissions or answer your emails that you think I could do it better? And what do you feel is the most important thing that you're looking for when you signed with me that maybe I do just so that I can be accountable and continue to do? Yeah, 
I remember what really stood out to you, Trisha, when we had that offer call, which took two hours. <laughs> it was like a date I never wanted to end. What really stood out to me about you, Trisha, was the fact that you were not afraid to tackle like what I feel like a lot of BIPOC writers would be scared to ask about. Like, how do you negotiate with editors? Like, mm-hmm. how would you stand by me if a editor wanted to whitewash mm-hmm. cultural aspects of my work? And a lot of this I have to thank Gail Villanueva for, for setting an example for me. Because Gail Villanueva, she's Filipina. She knows what it's been like. She's paved the way for mm-hmm. me as an Asian yeah. writer in this industry to know about what to be on the lookout for. And I really thank her and so many other BIPOC and Asian American writers who have come before me. And Trisha, I know like you also don't just talk the talk because you have Debbie Machika Florence and Paula Yu on your list. And with Paula Yu, I loved her Vincent Shin book. And I love that you represented nonfiction literature as well. And I thought just being able to have that for a YA audience was so important and so eye-opening. To go back to what you said, I think these are things that like what Gail taught you to ask. I think that's something that I'd like to stress it because I think this is something that folks should be asking is if you are BIPOC, if you are LGBTQ, if you are neurodiverse and you are signing with an agent, what does happen when that agent signs you? You send your book out, your work, your creative masterpiece and the editor or whoever. And sometimes it's lack of knowledge and sometimes it's just someone having a bad day, but there's also some other stuff too. We have to deal with it. It just is. So when they say, oh, this piece, or they say something that just feels not thought through in a response or just in a feedback or rejection, and they want to make a change or they want to do something that feels more in tune with how they view the world, I think authors like you, Joe, should be asking those questions. What happens then? Because these situations do come up. So what are the other questions that Gail had you asked? Do you remember? I can't remember off the top of my head, but with the sub experience, which I want to talk about as well, now that I'm experiencing that live, when I was at the Big Sur conference that Andrea Brown Literary Agency hosts, Mm -hmm. I remember they had their agent Q&A panel, and I asked them, what do you do if an agent were to come back to you when you have, say, a BIPOC writer and the editor comes back saying, oh, we already have someone of this ethnic group on our publishing list for next year. We don't need any more because that's a real thing. Like 100% or like even not even within the same ethnic group, but even within the right. same race. Like it's I, like we already like, have an Asian American fantasy this season. And it's, hello, Korean is not the same thing as Chinese <laughs> and Thailand is not Taiwan. I can't remember the agent's name off the top of my head from Andrea Brown, but I love that her response and also when all the other agents started chiming in, they were like, oh, thanks for outing yourself as a racist. That makes my job easier. Like now I know to blacklist you. And they said that Andrea Brown literary agency have Zoom calls about editors they've talked to, feedback they have, who to send to, who to blacklist. And I'm like, I am glad they are doing that because it holds themselves and the industry as a whole accountable. I think good agents, this is good agencies, just FYI, Emla has a Slack group. We talk a lot about responses. We don't just allow the responses to come in. Something that we do, and maybe Andrea Brown, Abla does as well, is we sit and figure out how we can maybe help to educate 
when we reply. We say, oh, this really isn't helpful. This feels a little this. A lot of times if it's the comments about we already have a book, we'll encourage them to say, oh, don't you want a table full of this? Like at some point in Barnes & Noble, we have a table full of white dudes who are having their Viagra problems. We have a table full of that. So why can't we have a table full of Korean American beautiful fantasy? Like why not? So just pushing back and calling in is also hugely a big piece of being a white ally in this business and not just letting it go by. It needs to be spoken out loud and called in so that they can choose in that moment whether they really want to double down. A lot of times editors do respond to us and say, that was a bad move. I'm taking it back. Yep, you got me. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, I get called in on a regular basis because I feel like I want to know. So thank goodness have excellent people I can trust. Clients, editors, whoever who can say to me, hey, this wasn't good. And then I can back it up. It's not about me, actually. It's about me getting out of the way. That's what it's about. And also, writers do talk amongst each other and compare notes. And I won't name any names, but I have spoken with my writer friends where we'll be like, oh, this agent told me this. And oh, my God, we're never going to email that agent. Or like Twitter blasts where someone wrote something super racist. It's just like gas. There are a lot of folks probably listening who are thinking, to themselves. How can I stay safe through querying? How can I stay safe to know that I'm querying the right people? Keep putting you on the spot, Joe, but I would love to hear what you recommend because I think this is really valuable. Yeah. So this is why it's so important to have these organic writer friendships. And what I mean by organic is you're not trying to be friends with someone just because they're popular and you can feed off their popularity. Like that never works that way. That always backfires. And maybe you want to fangirl over the same TV show on Twitter. Or maybe you're like, hey, I'm looking for beta readers for this MG Fantasy. Anyone want to create a group? Just to critique each other. And this is also where Facebook groups, like the mainstream Facebook group, is also very helpful. Just like forming friends, talking about writing and writer's life. And I think just being able to have that network, being able to go to a writer friend and be like, hey, I experienced this. Is this normal? Should I expect this? Mm-hmm. Do you ever experience something mm-hmm. too? And for a lot of us, we'll be like, oh, yeah, that's fine. And I think it's just really good because when you're isolated, it can be very easy to get it all over your head and like just stressing over, oh, did I do something wrong? Are they in the right? It's very difficult to face down something that feels racist. You can speak better than I can, but you you were raised to think, oh, is this me? Am I overreacting? Yeah. yeah, like I will say, just to share personal experience, I remember like the agent, when I got on the call with her, she was starting to tell me what racism looks like. And she was like, oh, I feel like you're being too overt with how these white characters are being racist. Usually it should be more of like a microaggression. And I just remember just taking notes and just thinking, this is not the agent for me. I don't know if, is it her place to tell me because she would know about editors better than I do? And then I talked to some of my friends afterwards and they were like, wait, she, a white lady, is telling you about how you should be experiencing racism? What in the world? And I'm like, man. Yeah, that's not good. Because once again, it's my white gaze. I'm going to put it back on me because I'm white. There's just, that's just what I am. It's putting that white gaze out to the world. Like, I can only see what you're going through through my white lens. So part of being an ally, part of working in this business and removing myself from the actual focus, this is not about me, is taking that off and attempting to see the world through your eyes, how it feels to be Joe Wu, how it feels to be walking in the world as you, 
and not trying to copy or assimilate or any of that. And it can be difficult. For one thing, it's hard. It's hard to literally decenter yourself. It's very difficult for us anyway. We're like, oh, the world's our oyster. It's all for us. Take it off and just stop for five minutes. And I think that's where that white agent made a mistake. And that's where the beauty of the fantasy genre is, because people can go to all these different worlds and explore all these fantastical species, like fairies and angels and elves, like Lord of the Rings. I know one of the critiques of Lord of the Rings, it is very dated. It, I mean, it was what it was at its time. It was like, okay, so you can imagine orcs and you can imagine <laughs> elves, but you can't <laughs> emphasize with real life, like non-white no. people. Yes. Right. It just shows our limitations. We're able to go into all these different directions. And that I think that's why fantasy is the connector. Because look at what J.K. Jemison have been able to look at what... Faya magazine has been able to do just there's just wonderful stuff coming. These are under considered voices, not that they've been underrepresented. They just haven't been considered. We've just been over considering the other voices. And so they're under considered and it's about time to change the weights, change the levels. Thank you, so we're Jessica, find you. for letting us just go off on this crazy tangent. It was terrific. It was terrific. So where can we find you online? So for me, for writer-focused stuff, there's my official website, joewu.co, not com, .co. And on Twitter, I am at joe underscore wu underscore author. And if you're a TikTok person as well, my TikTok's like all over the place. Like I have writing, I have cosplay, I have Asian American rants on there. It's just my stage name, Carmilla Joe. Love it. And I am mostly social media, but I just recently was able to hire a web designer to fix my website that I killed during the pandemic. I literally tried to kill it. And so I rescued it. And TrishLawrence.com, T-R-I-S-H-L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E.com. It's just a place where I write essays and talk shop, but it's also a good connector for all the social media too. It's all connected in there. And my agency is EMLiterary.com. You can go look and see what we're up to, books that we're selling, people that we rep. And I'm always on social media at author blogger, author blogger, two words together. That was not the plan to be author blogger. I had started a whole bunch of Twitter accounts in 2011, and that's the one that stuck. So that's what I am. I would say just to all listeners, don't give up on the industry just because it's going through some really serious shifts has no bearing on your writing. You're just as important as you ever have been. It doesn't feel like it, but that's just because the industry is literally, <laughs> they have no idea what's going on. And just keep it up. Don't stop. If you're a writer, be a writer. Don't let anyone tell you you can't, even if it's me or another person. Just keep going and always trust yourself the most. Trust yourself. Find that deep connection to yourself and just go and be amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.